0: So, I grew up in a home that was not ideal. My mom was an alcoholic. Um, My stepdad was a hard guy to live with. We were very poor. Um, you know, we lived in a trailer. We had one box of cereal for the week when the cereal was gone. It was gone. I remember times like when he was laid off where we would have powdered milk instead of milk and you know, we never had snacks, but my mom, we always had dinner. We always had a good dinner. My mom always cooked dinner. I think that like growing up in that house was hard just because you couldn't be a kid. Like you felt like you were always walking on eggshells. Um, you felt like you were afraid that you were doing something wrong, even if you weren't trying to do something wrong. So I just remember I went to church with my, my friend next door. And I really think the the reason why I kept going back at first was just because their family was so great. You know, I hadn't been around a lot of people other than my family. So I didn't know, I didn't know that my family was so abnormal. Like the first few times I was over there, I remember we would have dinner as a family. They would sit down and eat together and talk about things. We would watch, we would play board games or watch TV together. Grandma Dorothy would always curl my hair um, for church the next day. I remember going to church and, like, this is nice. I like this. This is calm and relaxing and not stressful. I would do, like, church Olympics, you know, and we would, I would travel with them and we would go different places. And I just remember the fellowship and the kindness of people and being able to be yourself without the fear of being in trouble or getting yelled at. And that was such a freeing experience for me. Um, like, you know, knowing that, that church was my safe place. Church was my safe place and knowing that, someone always had my back. Like I had God there to pray to when I was lonely at home, when my parents were fighting or my mom wouldn't come home, that I had someone there with me all the time. So my mom got sober. Um, She had liver failure and went to the hospital. And they told her, if you drink anymore, you don't have a year to live, like you're going to die. And I remember looking at my mom and saying, it's time for you to choose. Like you either choose your grandkids now or you don't see them anymore because I was not going to have my kids be around to watch her die. And I told her that, and she said, she had chosen, she's like, I don't feel like I ever wanna drink again. I have no desire, I have no craving. Um, And she never drank again after that. And she was sober five years before she passed away. Um, And within those five years, she was the most amazing grandma she could be. And I remember one time she said to me, she said, I can never go back and change the things that happened when you were a kid but all I can do is be here for you now and be the best grandma I can be and I just said if I had to go through all of those things to have you here with my kids and be the be, be the grandma that you are today then I was happy to go through the, the, those things when I was younger because my kids could not ask for a more loving caring grandma I could not ask for a more supportive mom and you know in that time you know to pray something for 20 years and then her to be sober and then her to be my best friend and then her to be an amazing grandma like all of those prayers were worth it. And I just had to wait. I just, I had to wait. And just so you know that no matter where you are in your life, no matter how far you are, no matter if your day is from death, like you can always ask God for forgiveness. So that, I mean, to me, that means everything.
1: Amen. It's a good story, isn't it? of redemption and the power of the church, the local church, the value that adds to people's lives. So great. Appreciate Mandy. We love her very much. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. My name is Greg Paris. I'm one of the guys here. Weren't the baptisms beautiful? Wasn't that just great? We've been doing that all morning. So encouraged. Now, the young couple who were baptized, they, they just actually just got married last night. So they got married last night, baptized today, start the honeymoon I guess that's the way to start it, right? So the right steps, we're happy for them, proud of them. We have some new friends I want to introduce you to. Check out this picture on the screen with me. As you know, Union Chapel is very much involved in planting churches here and there around the world. We know that planting new churches is a very strategic way to introduce people to Jesus Christ for the first time. And Robin Wood is on our staff here who coordinates those initiatives and this is a picture of Robin with some new friends of ours. And this is Nikolai and Svetlana, uh, as you view the picture on the right of Robin there, and their daughter on the other side of Robin. And they hail from Belarus. And the name of their town is Pinsk, P-I-N-S-K, Pinsk, Belarus. And they are church planters themselves. They planted this church in Belarus. They are planting other churches. They're actually... Opening a new church in Belarus in another city today, as well as dedicating this building you see there at the bottom, they they are um, one of one of these uh, bands of Christians who don't think that going in debt is a good idea, and so they have paid cash for this building. They've built it from the ground up, and they've already invested a million dollars in this building. Let me tell you how they have raised the money from Belarus, Eastern Europe. to be able to build this thing up to a million dollars. It's not completed on the inside, but it's, it's, it's you can occupy it. They have systematically taken 13 men from their congregation. They have friends in Sarasota, Florida, and these 13 men on a rotation come to the United States and they drive overland trucks. They drive 18 wheelers around the country, and over the last handful of years, they've been able to take of all the money that they've earned driving these trucks and invested in this church. And that's how they've been able to be debt-free up to this point, up to a million dollars. Nikolai, the pastor there, is on fire. When I tell you he's on fire, you underestimate me. You don't believe what I'm saying. This guy is lit up for Jesus, and, and he's wired I, his church is growing because people just show up to watch him burn because he is, he is white hot for Jesus. <laughs> Amazing. He's a very impressive guy. And we have become friends with him. We are engaging conversation and further partnership with him. As you know, we have associations now all over the place with church planters Another of our church planters, just coincidentally, is launching his church today, this weekend, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Troy Miller is someone we've introduced to you in the past. And because of COVID, Troy isn't able to open up to launch his church the first Sunday of the the church at the point in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, because of COVID. And so we're launching this church today online. So online only, a new church start And we're praying that 200 people will tune in on this first day of the Church at the Point in Pittsburgh. And so you'd be praying, thinking about them too. Back to Belarus. I knew that Robin was going to be in Belarus this weekend with Pastor Nikolai and and a conference where he was invited to speak, and, and they were going to dedicate this new building. And they decided that they wouldn't be able to dedicate the building because winter has arrived in Belarus and it's too cold, and they don't they don't have the heating system uh, set up yet in that new building, and so they just couldn't do it, and it was very disappointing for them. I didn't know anything about this, but I knew that Robin was leaving on this past Tuesday, and I woke up Tuesday morning, and the first thought I had that morning was, I should give Nikolai some money. Now, I hadn't had that thought before. Yeah, I just... Got to know Nikolai in the last couple of weeks. I don't know that much about him. I blah, blah, blah. And then a number came into my head. Now, I don't know how God talks to you, but typically I get garbled notes from God. Do you have the same problem? You know, some people seem to be able to hear God clearly, so forth. I have to struggle a bit. But the Tuesday morning, that number was pretty clear. Beth finally roused and I told her about, about what I, I was experiencing. I said, well, how much do you think we should give him if we're going to give him some money? I don't know, $5,000, she said. And I said, well, the number in my head is $10,000. She said, oh, well, good. She's usually agreeable to those kinds of things. And so I picked up the phone and I called Robin because I knew Robin Wood was going to be flying out of the States toward Belarus at about 8 o'clock on Tuesday night. And so I called him and I told him what I was thinking, and he literally began to weep. He began to cry, and he composed himself, and he said, you're not going to believe this story, but he said, I've been in contact obviously with Nikolai, and we're heading there to be with him this weekend, and Nikolai told me that they weren't going to be able to dedicate their building because it was too cold, and in order to heat the building, it was going to cost $10,000 to get that part of the building heated, and he said, I'm going to call him and tell him that I'm bringing $10,000 with me so that we can get some heat in that building and that we can dedicate that this weekend. And so this beautiful church in Belarus, Pensk, Belarus, is opening and being dedicated today, and it's part of the partnership that we have. I just wanted you to hear that story. It's pretty exciting stuff and very, very fun. So your generosity makes all that possible, and so thanks so much, and we are... We are excited about what God is doing. Um, We'll be taking a trip to Kyrgyzstan in September, or in November, rather. This is September. This is September, right? I'm not even sure what year it is right now. Frankly, I'm a little confused. This is September. No, in November we're going. We're going to Kyrgyzstan, which is the next door neighbor to Kazakhstan. We and. And, again, God is opening doors of opportunity. And I can only tell you that it's, it's an amazing story that's unfolding, a story of influence that God has given us here and there in partnerships to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. People have been pushing me recently about whether or not the signs of the times that we are experiencing right now are an indication of the last days, you know, is the apocalypse in front of us, you know, end times before us and I'm no prophet I'm not the son of a prophet but I believe that the most important verse of prophecy in the entire Bible is in Matthew's gospel chapter 24 and verse 14 and it simply says and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness to all the nations and then the end shall come and now that verse is right in the midst of blood and fire and billows of smoke and famine and war and pestilence and end-time drama, the apocalypse. That's what's being narrated there. And in the middle of all of that is, is this verse. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness to all the nations. And then, and you could add, and only then the end will come. So are we close to the last days? I don't know. Maybe. God knows. I don't know. No one else knows either. God knows. But I can tell you this. I don't believe the work is done. The work is not done. Someday, the last person in the last village, in the last unreached people group, in the last nation, yet to hear the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, will come to a meaningful faith in Jesus. And then... The end will come, but not yet, not until then. Jesus said, work as long as it's still today. Night is coming when no man can work. So there's work to do, amen? And we're gonna be about doing it. And so that's just another story and an indication that God's with people willing to do the work, amen. All right, let's talk about grace some more today. This is such a powerful subject, and I want you to get it. And our text today is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read the first 10 verses there from 2 Corinthians 12. Now, let me just give you some context. This is the Apostle Paul writing his second letter to the church at Corinth. Corinth was a destination city of the first century. It was beautiful, uh, awesome architecture, very elite, very prosperous, It was a it was a destination, kind of like Paris or New York City, you know, where you just you got to see that city before before you die. And people there were very affluent, very high social order, so they had very high expectations. And Paul had preached the gospel there, and many people had been won to Jesus. And this first century church, brand new church in Corinth, had some struggles related to this expectation they had for affluence and luxury and so forth. They liked liked high capacity. They, They liked things big and bold. And there were false teachers that had infiltrated the church at Corinth and they were leading the church astray. And so the apostle Paul is trying to comprehend how he can get the focus of the Corinthian church off of these false teachers and onto and back to Jesus. And so the apostle Paul reasoning that the Corinthians appreciated accomplishment and ambition and success and all of those those qualities, he decided that he would remind them of his own resume, his own ambitions, and his success in preaching the gospel. And in so doing, then he could contextualize a message to the Corinthian church that would lead them back to a meaningful connection with Jesus. That's the context of this passage. So again, I'm going to read these first 10 verses from second corinthians chapter 12 our custom is to stand as you're able to hear god's word this is to honor god's word and to thank god for its authority in our lives so he says i must go on boasting now he he spends most of the chapter 11 the prior chapter talking about all of his hardships beaten stoned left for dead shipwrecked imprisoned on and on the list goes i mean it's i mean it'll wear you out just reading what this poor guy had been through And he said, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. So again, he's building a case for the Corinthian church and indeed for us of his credentials, of his legitimacy as an apostle, as a leader. And so he said, I'll go from the suffering I've done physically to this revelation. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. He's talking about himself. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to a paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. And now he turns it. And we should note, we should pay attention to this. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now he goes to this point, that some kind of physical malady accompanied his life. He called a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, now note this phrase, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Can you hear it? I'm not sure we can hear this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, let's try to figure this out, might we? You may be seated. Thanks so much. Paul builds his case, and he does it quite effectively, I might add. And who was more qualified to, sp- to speak for the kingdom of God in his day than the apostle Paul indeed in any time of history than the apostle Paul and so he builds his case he builds his resume he reminds people of his qualifications his credentials and then he flips he flips this natural tendency that the Corinthians have to gravitate toward big and bold and impressive and accomplished because this is this is their culture they like that they gravitate to that kind of strength and he builds a case for his own success, and then he flips it by saying, but the thing that's greatest, the thing I glory in, is my weakness. Now let me put this statement on the screen because this is the point. When we're weak, that weakness gives space for God's grace to show up. It gives a spot for, space for, the grace of God. Now, let me remind you, the grace of God is simply the presence of God. It's the peace of God. It's the power of God. It's the provision of God. It's, it's God's grace. It's, the, it's a gift. It's unmerited favor. It's, it's the wonder, wonderful gift of God's presence, of his salvation, of his healing, of his provision in our lives. It's his grace. It's a gift. It's God's gift. It's freely given. It's for by grace have you been saved through faith that not of yourselves not not the result of works not what you do not how you perform not because of your religious ritual keeping rule keeping it's not about that it's about a relationship with god made possible through his son jesus christ motivated provided by his grace and that's why that's why hebrews 12:15 is our theme verse for this whole series when the writer says see to it that no one misses the grace of god Don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it. You can miss a lot of things in the context of a relationship with God, but don't miss grace. Can't miss it, so important. It's vital, it's cornerstone, it's foundational. And so don't miss the grace of God. Now again, 2 Corinthians 12 from our text, I want you to see it because it's so critical. But he said to me in the midst of my physical pain, this thorn in the flesh, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, my grace is enough. My grace will satisfy the need. No matter the size of the need in your life, my grace will fill it. No matter matter the season, the circumstance, the situation in your life, no matter how deep, how profound, how difficult the trial, the challenge, the pain, my grace will fill that up, will meet that need. My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. How many of you know this is not elementary level? This is another level. So you have to, you have to try to hear it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I'm weak that is when I am strong. Now listen to me. This teaching, this teaching is not possible, can't be heard if Paul had not approached it from a position of strength. The Corinthians admired strength and capacity and success and Paul comes to them from that perspective. So he's, he's being re- culturally relevant with them by reminding them of his ambition, his success in life. And so they acknowledge that he comes to them with this idea from a position of strength. I mean, if he had come to him from a position of weakness, I mean, they could have just blown him off very quickly. And indeed, weakness is not the position that you want to come to any place from. If Paul had said, you know, I've been shipwrecked three times, snake bit, three times I've suffered 40 lashes minus one. I've been stoned. I've been, I've been shipwrecked in the open ocean, spent a whole day in a knife just floating in the middle of the ocean, wondering if you'd ever be rescued. I mean, he's been through some stuff. And if he had said, you know, pretty much you can just chalk up my life as a victim. I'm a victim. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. And when Paul would go into a town, he didn't ask, you know, what are some of the nicer hotels here in town where I can stay? He would have to ask, what are the jails like here in town? Because inevitably, he ends up in jail. Preaches the gospel, they throw him in the clink. This is his life. This is his way. And he could have come to this from a position of weakness. You know, I just get beat up. I get mistreated. Life is unfair. You talk about injustice. I have suffered it. I didn't deserve any of this. And so here I am. And I'm a victim of life. And I'm not sure I'll ever be any better for it. Oh, by the way, glory in your weakness. Because that's where the grace of God is. You know, the power of God is perfected in our weakness. If everybody's weak like me, then you can find the power of God. You hear how lame that is? How pathetic that is? Instead, he says, look, look, I know what strength is. I know what ambition is. I know what achievement is. And in one point, he goes through the list of his credentials, his academic credentials, his professional credentials, his life experience credentials, his, his sacrifice for the cause of Christ credentials. He goes through the whole thing. And as I said, no one has a better resume in history than this guy. And so he comes to this point from position Of strength, of success, of capacity. Can you hear that? Can you feel that? This guy is impressive in every way. And yet he concludes that I would rather glory in my weaknesses because I have discovered that in my weakness, that's where the grace of God flows. That's where the presence of God comes. That's where the power of God is revealed. Now this is a powerful, powerful concept. This is very important. Of course, we live in a culture right now where there are all kinds of pressure points. I mean, it's just one thing after another. It just keeps piling up, and you just wonder, you know, are we going to survive this? And and right now, we have this cancellation culture, you know, where people actually just think the best thing to do if I don't like something is to destroy it. If I don't agree with it, then try to shut it up. You know, burn it down, tear it down, pull it down. If If it doesn't agree with me, then I just try to get rid of it. Cancellation culture. It's insane. We have, we have victimization as a virtue in American culture right now. If you're not a victim and see yourself as a victim, live with a worldview of victimization, then you are not a whole, healthy, valuable person. People that we admire the most in our culture right now and, and put on a platform are people who declare themselves victims. Let me make this statement, and I made this statement many times before any of this stuff happened with COVID and the social unrest and political unrest and all the rest. This is a conviction that I have, and if you have ears to hear it, you might think about it more fully. It's simply this. If your primary sense of personhood, your worldview is from the perspective of a victim, you will never, you will never Be the person God has called you to be. You will never reach the potential of God's best plan and purpose for your life if you see yourself primarily as a victim in life. Now, I didn't say you're not a victim. I didn't say that you haven't been victimized. I have not diminished in any way things that have been done to you, hurt you, and victimized you. People get victimized every day of the world. We've all been victimized. Some of us profoundly victimized. And it's understandable why it would leave a mark and be a be a struggle because of the experiences you've had. Having said that, you will never reach your full God-given potential in life if you see yourself primarily as a victim. It's the wrong place from which to live your life and to take your stand. One of the guys I most admire in our culture today is a guy named Ben Carson. He's an American politician, he's an author, he's a retired neurosurgeon, and the current secretary of housing and urban development. In a recent speech, Ben Carson, Dr. Carson said, and I quote, my mother told me from my childhood that you can be anything you want to be except a victim. And he took the words of his mother to heart. And so when Ben Carson, who has written a number of books, is as accomplished as any human being alive today in in the United States of America, when he writes a book on on how to overcome difficult circumstances and how to to reach your potential, that's a book you might ought to pick up and read, because he knows something about it. Failing, resisting the temptation to be victimized by whatever circumstances have come his way, instead turning to God reaching for his full potential and doing a bang-up job of it. So here's the Apostle Paul giving us a teaching that cannot be heard, cannot be appreciated from any position other than a position of strength. So here is a guy of massive accomplishment saying, much better to recognize your weakness because in that, that's where the power of God flows. That's where the grace of God comes. That's the space into which Jesus shows up. So my grace is sufficient for you. And that's what we hear. So here's, here are three things that we learn from this text that are applicable, I think, to our experience of grace. Number one, if you have your outline in front of you, grace is greater than our infirmities. Grace is greater than our infirmities. Now, Paul mentions this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. He does not specifically detail what it was. Some think maybe he was epileptic. Some folks speculate he had eye trouble. Galatians 6, he writes, you'll notice I'm writing in my own hand because of the large letters. That that could be an indication. Some folks think maybe he suffered with migraines or had a speech impediment of some sort. Some folks think maybe he was just kind of bent over from being stoned three different times in his life. You know, how many times do you get beaten and scourged and thrown, thrown into prison before you start, you know, getting bent over from it? And so we just don't know. But we do know that he doesn't tell us specifically what the malady is. We're left to speculate why he wouldn't tell us. And one reason I think is because he doesn't want us to feel sorry for him. He doesn't want to be perceived as a victim. He's not going there. Maybe God doesn't allow him to tell us because maybe a malady that we might suffer, we think maybe this is the same malady the Apostle Paul had. If he could do it, I can do it. Who knows what the inspiration might be? But we do know that God is greater than our infirmities. His grace meets us. One of the most uh, powerful moments that I've had in pastoral ministry was a few years ago when a friend of mine who is suffers from cerebral palsy, And is confined to a wheelchair. Um, And in my ministry to them, in my friendship with them, had this conversation one day. And I was trying to encourage this person by saying to them, you know, someday you will be whole. I was trying to imagine heaven for this person and their ability to be completely free, physically, to move about any way they wish like most of us are able to do. And the person looked at me and said something that changed me. I won't ever forget it. They said, oh, I don't mind that if in heaven I have to be in this chair. What? What? Because in my mind, I'm trying to imagine myself in that chair with that circumstance, living in that body that's dysfunctioning disabled and my imagination i'm thinking you know my my number one goal in life is to get out of this body because it just fails at so many levels and so eternity in my imagination would be an experience out of that chair that wheelchair that's that's my weakness thinking that way. But you understand what's happened in this person's life. You understand. This person hasn't been healed of her affliction. She's been healed in her affliction. She hasn't received healing grace that allows her to get out of the chair, although God could make her stand out of the chair just like that. The Apostle Paul begged God three times, please take this away from me satan put it on me messenger of satan has inflicted me with this and you could take it away from me so we know the theology is the devil caused it at least in this case and god could take it or remove it if he wanted to but chooses not to and why would he choose not to because my grace is made perfect in your weakness so what we learn about the apostle paul is he never brings it up again you never hear him writing about it again he comes to terms with it. He's at peace with his infirmity. He's healed in his infirmity, not of his infirmity. The grace of God now comes into that space. Isn't that that interesting? Isn't that powerful? Isn't that curious? Now, the application, of course, for all of us is that all of us have needs. All of us have prayers. All of us have Things that we'd like God for touch, for God to touch and to change. But maybe God would say to us, in this particular case, the answer is no, because in that context, that is a space in which my power and my grace and my provision can flow. And you can actually experience God's grace in the most difficult circumstances. Grace is greater than my infirmities. Here's the second thing, maybe you have this on your outline grace is greater than my inabilities. My inabilities. Usually, when we hear the word weakness, uh, we don't always interpret it because we're not always willing to deal with our weaknesses, to admit our weaknesses. We kind of live in denial of our weaknesses. I, I have a problem. My, one of my problems is I hate to ad, uh, not only hate to admit my weaknesses, I have blind spots of my weaknesses. I'm not even sure what they are sometimes. And people hear me say that, they smile because if they know me, they say, well, look, Pastor Greg, if you want to sit down with me, I can give you the short or long list of weaknesses that I see in your life. I mean, they're pretty obvious to me. Why can't you see them? This happens in uh, job interviews, for example. People are asked traditionally uh, these questions, what are your strengths? And people talk about their strengths. And then conversely, the question is asked, what are some of your weaknesses? And people are reluctant to share their weaknesses in a job interview because they're afraid They share their weaknesses. They won't get hired. And so people say, well, you know, one of my weaknesses is I'm very task-oriented. And and, and it's my weakness. And I I sometimes see things that need to get done, and I just do them. And sometimes it's not even my responsibility, but, you know, I just want to get things done. I have to work on that. Or, Or, you know, I'm a little bit of a workaholic. You know, once I start something, I've got to finish it. And there's there's just no going back for me that way. And I sometimes I get out of balance. I don't always take care of myself all that well, but I tend to be a workaholic. Yeah, I can see that's a terrible weakness. <laughs> so folks are reluctant. Um, we disguise our weaknesses, and we actually like to announce our strengths. Years ago, Beth and I were at a conference. There were a lot of big shots at this conference and scholars and, and uh, notable authors Christian authors and we were just there to soak up as much as we could and we were early in ministry we started to get some traction at the in the life of the church and so people around Indiana among Methodists were kind of hearing about us and we got on an elevator at the hotel at this conference and there was a man in the elevator whom I recognized and it was Dr. Bob Tuttle. Bob Tuttle uh, is retired now a notable theologian New Testament scholar Uh, very big personality bigger than life you know he's just very popular guy with students and he he taught at Oral Roberts University for years and then at Asbury Theological Seminary and so we got on the elevator and this was Dr. Tuttle and I, I introduced myself to him and Beth and Dr. Tuttle was very gracious you know he said I think I've heard about your church tell me about how things are going and that was very flattering and so I shared a few details about the life of our church and so forth and then he, he postured himself, and he uh, was given it this. And, you know, this was his, I'm thinking seriously about something right now, and I'm, and I'm going to say it. And so Dr. Tuttle, this is Dr. Tuttle. And he's, he's there like this, and then he looked at me, and he said, you know, after hearing your story, uh, I think I can say this uh, pretty honestly you're really not smart enough to be doing this kind of work, are you? I'm thinking, what did I do to you, Dr. Tuttle? But I heard myself say, in response to that question, no, no, I'm really not. I'm really not. Beth told me later she almost punched him, which she's capable of doing. Said, Please don't punch Mr. Tuttle. Stop pummeling Mr. Dr. Tuttle. <laughs> Honey, I have to pull my wife off the guy. <laughs> she would have beat him up, literally. It's not, a, it's not a figurative comment. She's tough. Don't mess with her. I'm just saying. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. I want to put this on the screen. I want to teach you something. When they, the religious leaders of the day, who had confronted Peter and John because of a miracle they performed and then spoke to them about it and heard the response of Peter and John, they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. It was their ordinariness that made them so impactful. Because in their ordinarius, the power of God stood out. Now, here, here are two men. Have you ever heard these guys' names? Peter and John? Ever heard of these guys? Peter and John? You can reference the New Testament and find some of their writings there. Peter and John? These are guys who did not have the right credentials, did not have the right resume, did not have the right abilities, did not have the right talents, didn't have the right intellect, didn't have what it takes, couldn't possibly fulfill this mission. With all, of their, with all of their insufficiencies, these are two guys that by the grace of God changed the world. They turned the world upside down because these ordinary men submitted themselves in their weakness, in their inability in, in their insufficiency and allow the grace of God and the power of God to fill that space and to impact the world. Glory to God. Now, what does that say about us? What does that say about you? What is your potential? Well, you know, I just don't have, I'm not very, I don't, I'm not, I don't have what lots of people. Listen, that's the space right there. That's the space. When Bob Tuttle said to me 25 years ago, you're not smart enough to do this, I remember that. That's a good reminder because that is the truth. That's the truth. People ask, how in the world has this happened, the, the impact of Union Chapel o- over these years? I don't know. Jesus, a bunch of people praying, asking Jesus to help. That's how you get there. Yeah, that's how you get there. Corey Ten Boom, one of my favorite Christians of all time, Corey Ten Boom and her sister, their family uh, suffered the Holocaust, World War II. They were in concentration camps. Both Corey and her sister survived a concentration camp, horrific conditions that they survived. And Corey spent the rest of her life writing books and preaching the gospel. An amazing witness for Christ. And in one of Corey Ten Boom's books called Tramp for the Lord, she tells this story. This is post World War II Russia during the Cold War, the Cold War between Russia and the Western cultures. And here, here is this account where Corey was in Russia, and here's what she wrote This old woman was lying on a small sofa, propped up by pillows. Her body was bent and twisted almost beyond recognition by the dread disease of multiple sclerosis. Her aged husband spent all his time caring for her since she was unable to move off the sofa. In fact, there was only one part of her body that she could control. It was the index finger of her her right hand. And so with that one finger, she would type all day, every day, often late into the night. Now, for all you people uh, 45 years and younger, typing in the years of the cold war was on a machine called a typewriter there were no computers there were no keypads so the the pad was on a mechanical machine called a typewriter and you had to apply force on the key in order for the mechanism to work and throw an arm and make an imprint on paper Uh, that comes from trees, anyway. <laughs> but this woman wasn't just typing; she was translating. Watch this. And with that one finger, she would translate the Bible and Christian books into Russian. Her husband hovered close by and explained to me. Corey said that sometimes it takes a long time for her finger to hit the key. Corey Tinboom says that as she looked at this woman's wasted form on the sofa, with her head pulled down and her feet curled under her body, she said she just began to inwardly cry, Corey did, and began to pray inwardly, God, why don't you help this woman? Why wouldn't you relieve her suffering? Why wouldn't you extend your grace to her for her physical need? And the woman's husband saw the consternation apparently on Corey's face and was reading what was happening there, and so he answered her question, even though she didn't ask it out loud. And he said, God has purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is being watched by the secret police. But because she has been so sick for so long, no one ever looks, looks in on her. They leave her alone and she's the only person in all the city who can translate undetected by the police. Maybe for you you it's a physical illness. Maybe it's just a lack of having what it takes. Maybe it's an infirmity. Maybe it's an inability. Maybe it's this last point, number three, God's grace is greater than my insecurities. I've already confessed to you that expressing insecurity is not easy for me. My pride and insecurity keeps me from being vulnerable. I don't like feeling needy around anyone. It's my problem. Rarely do I hear myself saying words like, I need help. This is too much for me. I'm in over my head. I'm not sure I have what it takes. I don't know what to do. But slowly but surely over the years, I'm learning these lessons of grace, that God's grace really is greater than everything, than anything, even my insecurities. Paul said, I don't delight in my strengths, but I delight in my weaknesses. What? You delight in them? Yeah, because in my weaknesses, that's when the power of God is manifest. That's when the grace of God shows up. That's when the presence of God comes. It's in my inability, my insufficiency. That's where God comes. So I'd much rather glory in my weakness than spend my time reaffirming my strengths. Do you have an ear for this? Can you grasp it? I wonder if we pause to pray just for a few moments this morning and ask God to fill our cup at the point of our need with his grace, to allow God to fill your empty space of weakness with his presence. Let's pray. Maybe your need today is cup-sized. Maybe that cup represents your point of vulnerability or to represent your weakness in life. Maybe it's a little bigger than that. Maybe it's a bucket. I got a bucket of need. Maybe you've had a little bit of a health scare. Or maybe you're struggling to make the grades. Or maybe you can barely cover the bills. Gosh, maybe your need is a barrel-sized. You've lost your job and your confidence with it. Your marriage is in pretty rough shape. You feel overwhelmed. Your child with special needs has left you exhausted. You need some grace. Maybe someone within the sound of my voice today, your your need is like an empty water tank on the back of a flatbed truck. You found out that the cancer is terminal. You found out that the company you sacrificed everything for isn't going to make it. You found out about the abuse. Or you found out about the affair. Whatever size of container you come to God with today, friends, Listen to me, that's what he will fill. His grace is sufficient. So God, we thank you for this paradox. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us that when we're weak, we're actually strong. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong, really? But God, those of us who've experienced your grace in those moments understand it. We celebrate it. It doesn't mean that we don't want the the problem, the pain, to go away, it doesn't mean that we wish we wouldn't have had to go through what we went through, but it does mean, Lord, that you'll redeem it and that your grace met us when we were the emptiest and the most vulnerable. It does mean, God, that in those moments, your power has the most potential to be clearly demonstrated. And so, God, would you let us not be afraid to step into that, to move towards our weakness to step into vulnerability, to admit our need, even to glory in our weakness, so that we can experience the greatness of your grace, because your grace is greater than any need we have. We believe it today. Help us to experience it. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Everyone said amen, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?